Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Next Level. I'm JVL here with my best friends, Sarah Longwell and Tim Miller of The Bulwark. Thank you for joining us, however you're doing that, whether it's over uh, the podcast or the YouTube subscription page or, or all of it. Um, this will probably be the worst show we've done. Uh, oh, it could because... not possibly be worse than last week with AB. I've had several people tell me that they had to stop listening to that podcast because they were starting to look for razor blades. Well, this is pretty bad, too, because we've had a horrific terrorist attack in which, uh, you know, over a thousand people so far have been killed and more people. Have been, uh, it's just horrible, but we have to talk about it because it's quite important. On October 7, we woke up in the morning to a horrific terrorist attack uh, in the Gaza Strip. Thousands of rockets fired off to penetrate and bamboozle the Iron Dome system, and then thousands of Hamas fighters streaming across the border and massacring civilians, almost almost exclusively, men, women, and children, uh, where they lay. It, it almost defies imagining how terrible it is. Um, this really is Israel's 9-11. Um, there was only one good thing that I've read in all of this, which is uh, The Atlantic had an interview with a, a guy. Did you guys see this? Yeah. A guy who spent the entire thing in uh, the safe room in his kibbutz. Here are things, you know, the way people live. Uh, this guy lives with his young family on a kibbutz right next to the border. And the way these houses are constructed is they all have safe rooms to uh, shield them from rocket attacks. And that the safe rooms are where the children sleep. The safe rooms are always your children's bedroom so that they will be, I just can't imagine living life like that. Um, anyway, but this guy is locked in the safe room for like 10 hours, calls his father, who is a retired Israeli general in Tel Aviv. And this this man, this grandfather and his, his wife, the grandmom, hop in their car and just drive down to go and save their their son and his family and their grandkids. It's an unbelievable story. Um, am, am I right? It was Yair Rosenberg had this in uh, in the Atlantic. I think that's it. Anyway, we'll put it in the show notes. That's the only thing that I've read in all of this that that left me not feeling broken. The unimaginability of it is so key, right? Like for me, it was like almost yeah. hard to mourn for a minute, you know, for a little while. The way that, like, for whatever reason, unfortunately, we've gotten used to enough to school shootings that they, like, hit you and, uh, you know, and there's, like, a grieving and mourning process. But it's, like, uh, just the scale of the death at, you know, there's a music festival mass death, the death in people's homes. I like the images of bloody cribs and kids' bedrooms and then the knowledge yeah. of still yet unknown, really, like, number of hostages like the hostage taking is like out of a movie. Yeah, the hostage taking is an element that we're not yeah. used to, right? Like there is no 9/11 analog to that, right? Because that that the horror then becomes ongoing. Right. So it's going to be it's going to be very bad. Israel is going to go to war against Hamas. This is going to be an invasion of Gaza. Gaza is a very densely populated spit of land and there are going to be many, many, many civilian casualties there. It's going to be horrific. There isn't a lot to say about the horror, I don't think, but we can talk about the broader implications. I have one thing to say about the horror. Please, go ahead. There's the scale of the life that's been lost, but the cruelty... So I was thinking... I sort of haven't been able to stop thinking about this this babies, the thing with the babies, um, mm. where they killed 40 babies and 
And then there's like a, a, a mini fight about, well, did they behead all the babies or did they just behead some of the, like, it's like, it's like too, it's too much to take in. But when you, you think about what it takes to do something like that, right? Because we are hardwired as humans to protect babies, which means that to do something like this and then to take people that you have either raped or broken their bones and drag them through the streets to cheering audiences, like the scale of the hatred is to me the thing I can't quite process. Like the scale of the life loss is is horrible, but like, I don't know, like we, we've lived through enough atrocities to sort of be able to understand that. What I can't understand is the scale of the hatred, um, the ability, how somebody can find it in their, in themselves, because it's like, it's like the sociopathy of a serial killer, right? That you can't understand, but like in a mass mobilization of humans where they like collectively agree that they're going to do this to other people. Well, this ties to the other thing. It's the dehumanization of Jews. I mean, that's yeah. what it is. I mean, yeah. It's the it's, it's yeah. it's view of Jews as, non, as non-human. And so it, it takes it out of the, the context of how you would deal with humans or how you would act in, inherently as a human to protect a baby. It's because you don't see the baby as human. There is a, a very significant American cultural difference about this, which is like our approach to history here. We can't, you know, Americans don't remember what happened five weeks ago. We view Jim Crow, which was like, you know, Condoleezza Rice was a, the, a target of Jim Crow. We view that as something that happened uh, 5,000 years ago. But you go to other cultures in other parts of the world and history is much more alive and vibrant to them. And the Middle East is one of those parts of the world where, you know, like history is important and people carry around, you know, grievances and grudges for, none of this is meant as judgment, but just to explain why I think Americans have such a hard time processing so much of this stuff because our culture is so forward-looking, immediate, uh, you know, what happened yesterday is gone and who cares about it? And it it gives us a blind spot, I think, for for looking at and analyzing other parts of the world sometimes. So uh, let's start with the the U.S. response. I'm in the process of writing for Wednesday uh, my newsletter saying that I think Joe Biden has handled this from the American end about as well as we would want any American president to do so. Let me... Let me just give you guys a quick rundown here. Within hours of his first briefing early Saturday morning, Biden is on the phone with the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who he has not been friendly with. For good reason. But he puts that aside. He tells Netanyahu that we will provide Israel with whatever is needed. He is then all through that morning in constant contact with the NATSEC team, speaks with King Abdullah of Jordan, has 28 conversations with various leaders in sources in and around the region over the next 24 hours or so. The very next day, dispatches the USS Gerald R. Ford carrier battle group to the Eastern Mediterranean to try to send a message to Iran and others to, you know, keep a lid on things. On October 9, puts out a statement in which he fully supports Israel uh, and says nothing about whether or not, you know, nothing about restraint or, you know, it basically leads to escalation. De-escalation, right, into that. And then yesterday, October 10th, makes a really extraordinary speech. And, like, I won't even start quoting it, but it's the, 
People are already saying the most pro-Israeli speech of any sitting U.S. president since like Truman in the founding of Israel. And I don't know if you guys had the chance to watch it. It was absolutely extraordinary. By far, I think his best, the best, best speech he's, he's given as a Not president. Um, I mean, I think that on all accounts, just presentation, you know, he didn't, he didn't have his like soft elderly voice, right? I, you know, I, and there was a forcefulness to it. There's also a genuineness, right? Like you could see um, a lot of times it definitely feels like he is on uh, intentionally on message, right? Like uh, scripted. Scripted is maybe the word I'm looking for. And um, this was obviously scripted, but it felt very personal. You could see, you know, the emotion in it, the forcefulness, uh, the willingness to buck, you know, the left, and I know we'll talk about this more in details, but some elements of the left, right? The ability to do it explicitly, to give that forceful speech, and then to have his press secretary uh, just within hours of that, or maybe even within the hour of that, like uh, explicitly criticize Tlaib and Omar by name. I, I just thought like there was a period of an hour where it was like the administration is making abundantly clear like where Joe Biden is on this. So the world is clear so that the, there is no question. Um, and I think that took, you know, a little bit of political courage, but also I think it was just very important for him to do. And it's something that a lot of us have been wanting from him, right? Like, like show us that passion. It's been something that's been kind of missing, right? Uh, you know, he has this reputation as being empathetic. He's like so good at eulogies, eulogizing, right? And it's like uh, that has felt missing at times um, from from his public persona. And so, uh, you know, I, I just thought it was really, it was really moving. And, and I thought important. Here are a handful of things he did not do. He did not tweet out any threats. He did not call anybody dogs. He did not alienate any of our allies. He did not endorse war crimes in retaliation. And in fact, he talked specifically about, you know, one of the things that makes countries like Israel and America better is that we do act within the laws of war. That uh, was really important, by the way. And he did not criticize any of his domestic political opponents, most of whom rushed out to take shots at him. Tim Scott said that Joe Biden has blood on his hands. Tim Scott, who's the good Republican, Biden just assumes that America is unified basically. And his only real criticism was for the handful of democratic socialist leftist types who have been very bad on this. That's where his criticism was for, not for Republicans. And Sarah, for people like us, and I don't know how this plays with the rest of them, but for, for people like us, does it get better than that at the presidential level? Like, I, like, is there anything missing that we would have asked for on our wish list for a president's reaction to a, a crisis like this? I mean, more. That's more of this. Uh, to, to Tim's point, like, I think for me personally, you you are, you, JVL, find Biden to be often like, it's like you and I are watching different people because to me, he is obviously <laughs> sort of halting and not able to rhetorically, I think, give us what we need at this moment, which is frustrating for me because I think that like we need so like leadership is so desperately needed. And so when I saw that speech, I was moved and I was grateful. It, and there have been moments like this where I something happens in the world and I'm so glad that Joe Biden is president and not Donald Trump. The war in Ukraine is another one. And I think just where things are internationally, having somebody like Biden who both has experience 
uh, and like the proper temperament and also the correct, in my opinion, and I think this is where the three of us are pretty united, the correct orientation around what it means to have American leadership in the world and to especially American moral leadership. So like I have some criticisms of Biden right now that, you know, we can talk about where like I haven't always loved this administration's posture on Iran um, or the Saudis. But at the same time, those are the kinds of things that I think, you know, we can have sort of policy disputes over. And I think there will be some rethinking from the Biden administration after this about some of their policies. Uh, I hope they refreeze the billions of dollars sitting in the bank uh, for Iran. But in terms of the moral leadership and the moral clarity, and moral clarity is what's needed in this moment, right? One of the things I I object to so much about what Tim Scott did, because the blood on his hands wasn't his first comment. His first comment was like, Joe Biden's weakness caused this. Joe Biden's appeasement caused this. Like that was his first statement. And I gotta tell you, I tweeted this, but it's it really, I feel it very deeply that the Republican Party that I came to know early in my career was one that understood that when terrorists attack, you blame the terrorists. <laughs> like the terrorists are at fault. Right. That your We shouldn't first have to say move, that, but here we are. We do. No, no, no. Because, well, yeah. this was something for me in in after 9-11. In my in the music I consumed often, and and in the American left, not all of it, but there was a, a sort of an immediate like, well, this is because America does these things. Like we deserved this. We brought why this are on they ourselves. Angry at us? Yeah, this is why they're angry at us. And like, I actually think that there is good reason to have nuance and good reason to think about <laughs> the impact that obviously we have in the world and to not. But the 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 tendency to turn around and say, like, we deserve this, we blame America first, right? It's what Gene Kirkpatrick called blaming America first. And to me, it was like a manifestation of the fact that there was a lot of people who don't like America, who live here, and who want to immediately reframe what terrorists did as somehow our fault. And to watch the Republican Party do this out of the gate, take what terrorists did and say that it was America's fault that it happened is wrong and gross and literally the thing we used to criticize about our political opponents. Yeah. And to me, one of the deepest moral failings of my political opponents at the time and is now just like replete through the Republican Party. I mean, we're like days into this and like the way you respond to something like this is that you support and again, I just like there were missteps. There are actually missteps like Blinken had a really weird tweet. Yeah. You know, there yeah. were like some early stuff that didn't. But like Joe Biden clearly came out quickly and was like, here is where we're going to stand. I'm going to say it clearly and everyone's going to be with me. And they like locked it up and that is how, that is their posture. And I'm, I am grateful for it. I think it's like exactly what the moment needs. Some people will accuse us of being neocons or whatever, but like this is actually about defending democracy. Also, sorry, now I'm just ranting, but like one more thing, which is the Josh Hawley move money out of Ukraine and give it to Israel. Fuck you. The thing is, is that the moral obtuseness that it takes to not see that what we are dealing with is a dangerous world in which democracies are under assault, where in Russia they can just invade and take your country, right? And in and and Hamas is able to to murder and humiliate and parade hostages and and people they've raped. Like 
that people don't see that these things are connected in the immorality of them. And that what we as Americans are called to do, that like our leadership in the world, our role is to say, you cannot do these things and we will stand with the people who are the victims in this and we will we will stand against the aggressors. Like that is what we do. Anyway, that's that's the end of. I mean, in in Josh Hawley's defense, at least he isn't taking the Nick Fuentes, Andrew Tate line, which is that Hamas is good, actually. I guess there's that. It is worth just putting a finer point on. And I was um, I, I have other Biden thoughts I, I would like to get to. But like on the Tim Scott and Hawley thing, like the Tim Scott line on this is like would have in 2001, like been too far out there for Michael Moore. You know what I mean? Like had Michael, like had the most far left, like agitator of Bush, you know, come out in October of 2001 and said, George W. Bush has blood on his hands. Like there would have been widespread condemnation of that notion. You know what I mean? You can get into the policy implications of this, but the idea that that George Bush is in league somehow or is at the same level or has some involvement with the actions of a terrorist group that would just smash a plane into a building and kill mothers and daughters and sons. And like, you know, that Joe Biden would at some level have the same blood on his hands that the guy that beheaded the baby has. Like, it's fucking despicable. And Tim Scott is like, he's a good guy than the median Republican, right? Like, I mean, he's in the dead center of the Republican Party. It isn't this is it is not Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right. Like it is not Matt Gates, Right. It is like the center. And, and that is it has been so I hate the word normalized, but it's like been so this kind of hatred of the other internally. And like our domestic tribalism has been so normalized within the Republican Party that they think now that it's just like whoever the 20 year old that writes Tim Scott speeches are just like, oh, yeah, we can just be like Joe Biden. It's like Joe Biden has blood on his hands. Joe Biden did this. And like that is just it is despicable. And it in in addition to just being absurd, you know, I interviewed right before this, I interviewed a guy who's in Israel for the Sunday podcast. And it's like the notion that people in Israel would look at this and be like, you know, who who has a little bit of blood on their hands? Joe Biden. It's like it's preposterous. It would be preposterous for people that like are actually dealing with this. Like in addition to being offensive, like it also is just like it, you know, it, it would make no sense to the people actually dealing with this, you know, as they are ranking the the potential causes of this. So so anyway, like that is just Kathy wrote about this this morning. But like I, I felt like totally up in arms about the Tim Scott thing. And it is. And, and I think that the Biden speech and this is tying it back to Biden really quick to Sarah's point of more is more like the only critique you could possibly have of Biden is like, give that same speech three times a day. Maybe (laughs) I don't know. Like give it during interviews, go out there because just put the mirror up to these fucking Republicans. Like do not make it possible for them to say that just like, you know, make them look ridiculous with your seriousness, your sobriety, your passion in defense of Israel, you know, to the point that finally it did break through yesterday afternoon. I did notice, I mean, they're, they're good folks. You know, our friends at Commentary, J-Pod, you know, complimented this. Uh, that commentary has been no friend to Biden. You know, that's not JVL over there at Commentary, right? But even moving over, I saw uh, uh, a couple of Fox people, even the hated Greg Gutfeld, who I ranted about on Charlie's Pod on Friday, was like, you know, that was pretty good, right? That's like forced that to happen to isolate these disgusting, you know, attacks 
on our domestic foes as if you don't understand what the real threat is and who the real enemy is. I mean, like Tim Scott wouldn't say that about Putin. About how, you know, if you're saying worse shit about Biden than you're saying about Putin, yeah, like uh, it's time to recalibrate. So we had some some bad reactions on the left as well uh, at the the elected level. A couple members of the squad. Who, I don't want to get them wrong, but I think it was Rashida Tlaib and Omar, Om, Ilan Omar. Uh, yeah. Very bad on this. Uh, some de-escalation talk, left. even from some of the more normal folks like Markey. Ed Markey gets booed in at a rally in Massachusetts, which was encouraging when he talks about yeah. de-escalation. Bad activist groups, um, the Harvard student groups at Harvard. Uh, there was a in Times Square, right down the street from me. There was a big pro-Palestinian rally with people holding up swastikas and stuff. Um, people gathering uh, again far left outside the Opera House in Sydney, Australia, chanting "Gas the Jews." So there, there is certainly a left problem on this, and there has been for a long time. But I want to try out a thesis that I have for you guys, which is that we have here, as well as we do on the rule of law, a realigning moment in the parties where polarization is working in a good way on the Democrats. So you have Biden and you know John Fetterman, who is basically a commie, right? Also totally good on this. Every high-level elected Democrat has been absolutely rock solid on Israel. I don't. I don't think there is any anybody high, near high level might be doing some work there. Really? I don't yeah. know. Does Katie Porter count as high level? She's been okay. No, at best. I would count her as a backbench. Uh, right. I mean, I, I don't think she's anybody in Democratic leadership. Yeah, right. Sure. Um, anyone in the actual presidential administration has been very good on this. And I wonder if we are going to have a realignment in the way we did on vaccines. So uh, people may not remember this, but prior to COVID, vaccine skeptics were fairly evenly distributed between the left and the right. Maybe and even more COVID left. Hits, really? Maybe, maybe even more, more left, maybe I would even more say, left. than evenly distributed. And then COVID hits, and because of polarization, all of the vaccine anti-vax crazies are now joink over to the right wing. We don't have left-wing anti-vaxxers anymore. Uh, those those people just switch. And I wonder, this is, you know, there's some polling data on, you know, opinions of young Democrats pre-10-6, right, which shows them being fairly skeptical on Israel questions. I wonder if this moment and how unbelievably clarifying it is and how good the Democratic leadership has been on this and also how bad many Republicans are on this, does the same sort of work. And we see the, the Democratic electorate shifting. Because again, a lot of these people who, who are, I don't want to say pro-Hamas, but at least moral equivalency, aren't like Democrat-Democrat types. They're like Democratic socialists who like, you know, give a lot of side eye to actual Democrats. And I want, anyway, I, what do you guys think? I don't agree with that. Okay, hit me. I mean, I hope that that's right, but I, I just, we lived through, all of us, a period of time where, you know, we saw some pretty bad takes from people on our ostensible side, whatever you, I don't know, I don't know what side everybody's calling themselves on these days, but like, 
you know, uh, uh, signs of anti-Semitism, signs of racism, you know, that we're like, ah, you know, what's Charlie's old line? Like, that's just the uncle in the basement, right? And like, we can ignore that. That's just the uncle in the basement. And uh, we thought that was not actually true. And that we're, and so I'm not trying to create equivalency with like the Democratic anti-Semites to the Muslim banning Trump crowd. But I'm, I'm just saying that you have to you have to see it clearly. You know, like you can't excuse it away. I'm not saying you're excusing it away, but you can't just minimize it. And I, I, I think yeah, it's I'm concerning. Not minimizing. I'm just saying I think those people may be getting pushed out of the party. Yeah, maybe that happens. I don't know, though. I think that there is a powerful, I think the Gen Z social justice left that does not consider cis white Jews to be part of the marginalized community. I think that is pretty deeply ingrained in the Gen Z left. I think once um, they see the I Democrats of the neocon party now, um, they're going to yeah, be well, rethinking maybe, so, some I, so are you telling me that maybe some of those people become disenchanted altogether with the parties? And like maybe, yeah. you know, there is a period of time where, you know, green, the Jill Stein, <laughs> whatever group that grows a little bit. You know, because people are people feel alienated from the Democratic Party altogether. Um, maybe that happens. I don't know. I, I think that clearly, you know, to to just speak again to that, this is a weak parallel, but to the parallel with the old Republican Party and the way they treated their um, extreme wing, uh, the Democratic leadership is acting much more responsibly than Republicans did. I mean, I think that most folks. But I think you also see, are seeing it took a, maybe it, maybe it took a day or two for some of them to gather their courage. I mean, Big Gretch, everybody was talking about Big Gretch as a potential leader. Her first statement was, was atrocious. So weak. Was I, I was so was disappointed atrocious. to see that from her. She gave another statement a few hours later that was good. Okay, so again, this is progress. That's things going the right direction. That's better than what we saw on the right, which was devolution, right? Like people she understands would, that this is the party of Reagan now. Yeah, people going more and more over time. So I think there are signs that elected Democratic leaders are concerned and are a little uns on unsure turf on this issue about where their voters are. I'm optimistic that I, I think I do believe in this case it is a, a pretty severe minority. I think especially when you consider like who votes and older voters and I think older Democrats, people that are much closer to uh, uh, the anti-Semitic act actions of the past, like people that are closer to Nazism, people who's, who lived through that or whose parents did, right, I think are a lot, a lot more resistant to these notions um, than than the younger Democrats are. And so maybe this is something that, the, you know, seeing these horrors flushes some of that out. But we're in a period right now where there is a real, I, I think, I think a real div intra coalition division. We're talking largely about young and I, I hesitate to say Democratic voters, but I mean, really younger, voters. far left types, right? Maybe they vote for Democrats, but these people who Joe Biden was by and large not their first or second choice. Sure. Understand also, they have not lived in a world where Gaza, the conflict between Gaza and Israel has been really salient. The last time that there was like significant conflict was 2014, right? That was, that was nine years ago. It's almost a decade. Most of these people were kids, right? So, you know, they're being reintroduced to the issue and uh, in a way which I think is very clarifying. And I, I see reasons to believe that the mainstream Democratic Party is going to assert itself and help realign them a little bit. I think you should go to a college Democrats meeting at your local university and, and report back. I wonder if this is, Tim and I have a slightly different perspective, having moved in what I would call like the LGBTQ 
intersectionality community, almost socially to some degree, um, where you see a lot more of the intelligentsia counterculture types talking, like lecturing you about Palestine and how, like, and fighting over, like, there was like a fight a while back about pro-Jewish LGBT group, like being allowed to like march in the pride parade, you know, like there sure. is, and, and I also think like college campuses, which I don't think is by any stretch, like these things that are coming out of the college campuses, I don't think by any stretch represent the entire campus. Um, and I think we should be careful about painting with a broad brush because I do know one of the problems with the social media environment we live in is that the loudest voices get the most attention. And so it gets really hard to cut through and understand what is the majority opinion versus what is the like majority of crap we get hit with and see, right? And so we're seeing all these statements come out from these groups on these college campuses. And I'm like, does the NYU Bar Association, Democratic Bar Association, does that have like six people in it? <laughs> I don't know, right. Um, right? Like how many people does it actually represent? And I think we saw this since like that Blinken statement that got deleted is that there is gonna be like a desire on the left, like part of their internal whatever is gonna like kick out to be like, but wait, before we go condemning anyone, we need to understand and like, Actually, this is like where where I think Joe Biden is showing tremendous leadership is that in this moment, there is no justification for what Hamas is doing. This is not the same thing as a discussion even around Palestinian two-state. Like, hum, this is unequivocal. You don't have to say but in this scenario. You just say right. condemn, condemn. The, the world must come together, a moment for moral clarity. And I think... I mean, let's not even get to the fact that there are, and again, I don't think they represent like the mainstream Democratic Party, but they are part of the Democratic Party. And I think it's actually, I don't know if this is exactly right. I'm thinking through this, so just don't yell at me. But like, to me, it feels a little bit like the defund the police, which was like a real thing. Like it was real, but it still represented like very much a minority position. Like, Normie Democrats do not think anybody should go around defunding the police, but like it's enough of a movement-ish to say like it has a foothold strain in the Democratic Party. And I think that's, again, Biden's leadership matters a great deal because I do think it can correct against, like it, it can push sort of right-thinking people to just have like clarity about this moment and to isolate some of those people. But I also think You've got to show more than, this is when I say more, Biden more. It's not just Biden, but like, I know there's a lot of responsible Democrats right now and they should call out Tlaib. Like they should call out Omar on this. They should isolate them. Biden did and other Democrats should too. But by the way, he should get, I, I was literally having dinner, hello, listener, with a listener of this podcast who's a little more right than us, let's just say, uh, this week and um, and is and was offering their complaints about Biden. And saying, like, give me the sister soldier moment. Give me the sister soldier moment. And then, like, 24 hours later, I was like, here it is. Here, like, here, it is. here is the Ask White House press secretary. Receive. The White House press secretary. Like, is there an equivalent example of, I mean, I guess, like, Mitt, right? But, like, you know, but then he's a backbench sender when that's happening, right? Like, there's yeah. this is from behind the podium naming Tlaib and Omar. But, like, by name. And saying, I, I forget, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. That is outrageous what they what they put out, you know, attacking the victim 
in this case. Like that is not nothing, and I think that there are, and and I think it breaks a lot of assumptions about this White House that they were that they're you know too intimidated by the far left, too scared by the far left, and so I, I think that's all good, and I think that the reality is I. I I think the reality is that this is an issue that I, we don't know. Like, we're going to have to see how this plays out. Like, is it 10% of the Democratic Party that is Hamas curious? Is it 20%? Like, I, I don't, we don't know. Like, right, can they, can Tlaib lose a primary? Can Tlaib win a primary? Or will people challenge her? Like, like we just know, uh, or, or maybe not, maybe Hamas curious is too much. Yeah, but you I know would what not I mean. say like, Hamas, Hamas curious. I would say that there's this strain that's more like. So anti-Israel that there's, right. ma- that there's a thought yeah. inside them that like. Maybe they do need to be overthrown. Moral equivalent. Maybe the colonizers do right. need, you know, maybe it's something, maybe they do need to be, right? Like, what percentage of people have that thought in their head? And I do think that it's important for, and now this isn't the moment for this, but as, as you move forward, that for a Democrat, for, for there to be models of liberal leaders who are like, BB sucks. Okay, like what he was trying to do with the judicial system and to end democracy and to buddy up to Trump is all terrible. And and some of Israel's policies have been callous. Right. And by the way, in addition to him being callous and, and autocratic, he also massively fucked this up, massively fucked this yeah. up. I mean, there were warnings. He's Mr. Security. Like there's old press conferences of him standing next to his wall, his high tech wall, bragging about how nobody can get through, and then terrorists make it through, and it, there's it, there's hours and upon hours where innocents are being slaughtered, where nobody gets sent to defend them. I how like how do you fuck up that bad? Like it is just it's it's, it's just a like almost unimaginable how bad this group is. So I think that there is room for someone for liberals to model and say this is not about blind support for Israel or Bibi or all their policies. Like we can criticize, you can say that you need human rights, but you also have to be clear-eyed that this ideology, this anti-Semitic terrorist ideology is wrong and, and must be, I don't know if eradicated is the right word, but but must be fought against aggressively. Neutralized? Neutralized, better, yeah, neutralized. neutralized is maybe a better word. Let's move on. the the only other The only other topic worth talking about is the speaker's race. We had a candidate forum for the House speaker race last night, in which Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan went out there to press the flesh and shake babies and kiss hands. The takeaway seems to have been like, yeah, nobody's really impressed. The one hot hot nugget I think was Ken Buck asked them who won the twenty twenty election, and both of them equivocated. We're like, well, you know, it's very hard to say, and it's a lot of uh, a lot of weird things happen. I, I almost would have been more impressed if one of them said Donald Trump. Honestly, <laughs> it like, it's, been it's, it's like it's almost more <laughs> embarrassing to equivocate than to just say Donald Trump won. Like, just own your bullshit if you're gonna fuck if you're gonna if you're gonna be a bullshitter. But like, it's really mind boggling to think we're in this situation. I mean, who was out there? Ari Fleischer is out there tweeting, "Where's Biden?" Yesterday, and it's like. <laughs> Where is the minority party? Like the minority party can't even produce a leader. Like you know, I I, we're in the middle of these crises, uh, like ongoing crises, and 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 one of the uh, you know, and and one house of Congress cannot do anything, cannot act, like is unable to provide money and support. Like we have multiple ambassadors that we don't have. We have high-ranking military folks that are unfilled. What if? Part of the Hamas plan was to uh, was to also, you know, at the same time, try to distract America by 
by you know having an attack here. That's not insane to think that that could be possible. And like we have huge vacancies in important positions because one party is so incompetent and so unable to govern that they can't even produce from within their ranks somebody that can lead. And that the that the number one contender that they that we think we might end up with, Jim Jordan, is like a conspiracy-addled lunatic. And like that's who we're going to turn to in this time of crisis and the serious time. The Republicans, the the normal Republicans, are like Joe Biden has blood on his hands, and I'm going to turn to the guy that covered up wrestling rapes, like who is a like a, a conspiracist, uh, who was one of the leaders of the Stop the Steal movement. Like that is who they're turning to right now in this moment. I mean, it is like it is really gobsmacking. Yeah. So instead, they're in a closed door session as we tape, and. They're in the room where it's going to happen, uh, or actually probably where it's not going to happen. It's probably not going like, to happen. It's not going to happen. Like, these guys are, it's going to vote a million times, and honestly, like, six of the moderates should just go make Hakeem Jeffries speaker. Like, I know make I'm- Make one in, of themselves speaker, really. Yeah, make one of them, make a deal. Make a deal for a coalition government. I know it's fantasy politics. You get a portrait. If you make yourself speaker, you get a portrait just like Don Kevin. Don Bacon, can you hear me? <laughs> like, I just- Look, the reason that the Democrats didn't stand up for Kevin, which, by the way, even with a what a crap, you know, they had no reason to. Kevin didn't ask them. He didn't try to do anything. He didn't try to to be in coalition with them. Don Bacon or one of the other Lawler. I mean, I know Lawlers. They're all mad at the Democrats because they want to blame them instead of like actually looking inward at the absolute shit show that is their own party. But like. Go build a coalition with the Democrats, make some deals and work with, you know, the 50 to 60 really normal Republicans, uh, which no longer includes Nancy Mace, by the way, who's just out of her mind. Did you say Uh, 50 or 60? 50 or 60? Yeah. Okay. I know. I know. Aspirational. it, it might be aspirational. Uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to think about here's, – here's, this is what I was thinking. Actually, you guys tell me what you think about this because part of me just like can't fathom – not doing something to govern while this is happening. Like, don't you think that this requires a shift in perspective? I, I So I had a bunch of people calling me about, like, the coalition government stuff. Uh, or, like, people were floating it. Everybody's talking about it. And I was like, no, 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 no. Everybody stop. Like, get a grip on yourself. They hate each other right now. No one's building a coalition government. And then something like this happens. And you think, aren't there just enough grown-ups who look at this and think, my God, this isn't a moment when we can just afford to not have a Speaker of the House, to not be able to make important foreign policy decisions as part of as the third branch of government. And like, before it ends up being Jim Jordan, who will never fund Ukraine and will continue to have this motion to vacate at one and will allow it to like this thing to play itself out over and over again. Like, you're telling me no one can step forward and put to get like cobble together uh, an agreement? By, by appealing they, to their better nature? They can't even do a speaker continuing resolution where they keep McHenry in there for a month. Yeah. Like they can't just be like, okay, guys, we can't come up with anyone. So we're just going to keep the angry leprechaun in there for a month so we can at least fund Ukraine and Israel and keep the government open and like make sure that we have ambassadors. I guess and that's do the it Senate's through Christmas. Job, we're going to do it through the new year. Do you guys have thoughts on how much Scalise wants it? Because at this point, I do kind of wonder, like, you know, the dude's got health problems. But like a real health problem. Right. He That's what I'm saying. Cancer. He has like, a real health problem. Like. For who, for what, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that's the question, right? I, I don't, I, I don't know what Scalise's desire is. I don't think he has a McCarthy-esque fetish to see his head on a bust. Uh, but I, I do think that there is some percentage. Sarah is thinking fifty or sixty. That might be aspirational. I don't know. There's some percentage of people that not fifty or sixty percent. Fifty or sixty individuals. Individuals, right? I got that. Who, uh, who privately at least are expressing to Scalise that they do not want Jim Jordan. Yeah, right, the, and, and that he I'm is the alternative. I'm just basing it too off the number of people who did vote to certify the election. Like right. if I if I use that certification number as like some percentage of those people could like they have like at least the 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 judgment to know they should have certified the last election. Those to me are probably your people who aren't like wild about a Jim Jordan. I wouldn't be surprised if they fold by the way, but I think that's the I think that's what's driving this. Let me let me give you the bull case for Jordan. If you are one of those 50 or 60 responsible Republicans who look at the party and say, are you effing kidding me? We're going to make this guy speaker. He is manifestly unfit for the job. You also look around and say, on the other hand, we're going to renominate Donald Trump. And uh, there's nothing Jordan can do as speaker that won't be outdone and made worse once Trump is the nominee. It's only for uh, another year and three months, at which point we will live in an entirely new political reality and how much damage can this do? And why don't we just like, fine, take it. Have Jim Jordan there. I wash my hands, right? I could see that as being a pretty rational reaction if you are just a normie Republican. No? Yeah. Yeah, especially if you add to that, that those people like privately are seething at the Freedom Caucus and privately hate them. And, are, and you know, you could see them saying, fine, you guys be in charge for a while. See how you, We'll see how you like it, you know? Now, now I get to be the troublemaker that's complaining yeah. about you and causing problems for you all the time. Can I just say, this is one of those times when I, I get a little, I get torn on this because there's a part of me that thinks Jim Jordan should be speaker because Jim Jordan represents the Republican mm. Party. He's not an outlier. And in fact, Kevin McCarthy was a bit of an outlier. Like Kevin McCarthy was pretending. Tim made this point on the AB uh, podcast, which I listened to, um, and I thought it was a great point. That Kevin you. McCarthy. You listened to that podcast? I did. I wanted to see how uh, how it was without me. Um, <laughs> answer was pretty good. It was good. Uh, but Tim made this great point where Kevin McCarthy got the speakership by doing all the wrong things and lost the speakership by doing the right things, right? Because his incentives are inverted or the, the morality and incentives in the Republican Party are inverted. So I, I just think, Jordan, people should see who the Republican Party really is. And the more the Republican Party gets to hide behind the like coiffed hair uh, of, of a guy like um, Kevin McCarthy, the more they put like a norm, even though he's an election denier, even though he's a Trumpist, right? He's meaning to be kind of the fusion between the old guard and the MAGA takeover. And like, let MAGA take over and show people what it really is. I think that's sort I think that's kind of important. On the flip I side, disagree. well, hold on. The okay. reason I'm torn is that on the flip side, it has real ramifications. Real ramifications. The biggest to me being that Jim Jordan will not fund Ukraine. And that's a real consequence, an important major consequence. But I, I don't know what to do about the fact that this is the Republican Party 
And we need to expose that this is the Republican Party. And we need to beat this version of the Republican Party. Like, Democrats have to take the House back. And I am torn. I don't think that seeing the true face of the Republican Party is going to change anybody's mind because Donald Trump is the true face of the Republican Party. He's crazier than Jim Jordan. Everybody has seen him for seven years. And the country is still basically like, yeah, okay with it. Right? I mean, people have seen who it is. It is much better to have somebody like Kevin McCarthy who, again, and I, I am not just lamenting him because he's gone. We were all very good about giving him credit when he did like the two or three good things that he did as speaker. Kevin McCarthy actually did do a couple good responsible things, right? He supported Ukraine. He avoided the debt ceiling. He passed the CR to, to make sure we didn't have a government shutdown. And those are the things that he paid a price for. It is better to have somebody like that because that contrast, which is what you're, you're saying, like we have to make the contrast better for voters. The voters are so stupid that they have been given all the contrast in the world. There is no, not how many people can name the Speaker of the House anyway, right? What percentage of the American public can name the Speaker of the House or knows what the Speaker of the House is or does? I just don't think that any more contrast is going to change any outcomes. It's better to have somebody who's quasi-responsible, who is going to, like, you know, 5% of the time do the right thing. This is where I think, as you know, I think you're you're wrong when you are, you think about the Republican Party as monolithic as opposed to there being a percentage of it that is persuadable. Because one of the things that I talk about a lot is this kind of Reagan hangover, the way that the Republican Party runs on perception fumes, right, where people are like, no, it's the responsible foreign policy party or it's the, you know, it's much better on the economy. And like a lot of that is people still have this image of like, well, this is the party of, of low taxes, freedom, American leadership in the world. And like you do have to show those people that's not what it is. And frankly, I still see a lot of people, including Democrats, who think of Donald Trump as like an aberration, like there's normal Republicans and then there's Donald Trump. And they do not realize that actually Donald Trump is now like a median Republican. And I think if you think about it like I do, which is in terms of margins and how do you pull margins away from this dangerous version of the Republican Party to build a big, broad pro-democracy coalition, then you're like, let them see Jim Jordan, because otherwise Kevin McCarthy kind of normalizes it for those voters. And I think getting those voters to see how damaged the party is, is actually a challenge. And it's been a challenge in part because as long as Liz Cheney was still there, as long as Mitt Romney was still there, there's this ability to be like, but I'm one of those Republicans. And I think you sort of need to yeah. pull that curtain back. That's fair. Best case I could make for it. I agree with Sarah. Tim, you were nodding along. You had something to say. No, I agree with Sarah. I want people to see it. I don't know. Uh, this is I, I don't I don't think that there's a good uh, clear answer to this. this. Has been a running debate internally I've had for seven years. I was always of the view. I was like I think that Corey Lewandowski should have been Donald Trump's chief of staff, and Laura Ingram should have been his you know Secretary of State, and we should have just ripped the Band-Aid off as quickly as possible. Many people lecture me about how irresponsible that is and how lives would have been felt like maybe we wouldn't be here. I, I don't know. We don't know. Like it's a counterfactual, but I don't. I, I, anyway, Kevin McCarthy's gone, and I don't see like a meaningful difference. I guess is Steve Scalise going to cut? If you came to me and like the options are Jim Jordan and no Ukraine funding, or Steve Scalise and Ukraine funding, I guess I would say Steve Scalise. But like beyond that, like he's not any fucking different, right? Um, he's just like a little. He's just like a little bit less weird. And so I don't know. I, I I do see that there could be a marginal advantage to letting the creepy and weird. And if this party determines in 2013, in the face of 
this horrific terrorist attack in Israel in the face of Russia invading Ukraine, that they want to put forth like the two biggest buffoons in the entire party as their presidential nominee and as their congressional leader, then like, okay, then let's fucking see it. Let's ride it out, I guess. And if the people want that, then I don't know. I really, there's some, I've been looking at, at uh, property in Uruguay. So now you're talking my language because that's what the people are going to see. And that's what they're going to ask for. Got to stay in right. folks. Sorry. This is ours. Guys, good, uh, not a good show, a very depressing show, a very dark show, but uh, but a useful show. So uh, Can I can I tell you a story? Can I tell you a story yeah, that'll please. cheer you up? Is it happy? Please make it happy. It's kind of happy. So Tim just invoked Laura Ingram, and I was at a conference recently, uh, and Laura Ingram spoke just before me, and uh, and she... Uh, what sort lied. of conference has her and you? I'm not going to go into it, but I'm just going to say okay. that it was. That's a it very was, strange it was, lineup. It was meant to. Re- that was meant to represent like a range of views, and so she okay. was there. Uh, and, the, and the and the audience was being was just incredibly polite uh, to her, and I was like sitting listening to her, just like twitching in my seat as she proceeded to say things like some of the the worst things were like that the news that she was just reflecting back the anger that exists, right? She's just there mm. as like a vessel, right? Reflecting it back. That was one. Two, that like the news shouldn't be boring. Like you don't watch, like why do you tune in to watch Taylor Swift at the football game? And it's like, cause it's entertaining. Uh, and so like, she's not gonna do boring news, whatever. So I was up next. And, like, I was kind of on a panel, and, like, we were kind of having a mishmash conversation that I didn't really think was going anywhere. So I was just like, you know what I'm going to talk about? I would like to talk about what Laura Ingram just said. And I... What did you say? Well, uh, that just because we have to res- we want to respect other people's views does not mean we have to sit and be gaslit and lied to by Laura Ingram. And that the news is actually what we do to get information to make good choices about our democracy. Uh, and then I hit the guy hosting the panel. I, like I was, you know, flailing my arms around, getting all worked up. And I was like, it's not entertainment. News is not entertainment. It's different. It's a different thing. You don't compare them. Anyway, I lost my mind and went on quite a rant. And then and, and the audience, I scratched an itch for that audience. Oh. I, the audience was, the they, they, needed, they needed somebody to have expressed uh, that what we just heard from Laura Ingram was like a load of um, Did garbage. Did they slow clap and then one at a time start standing up? No, no, no. So then the yeah. next thing that happens, like the weirdest dream you've ever had, you're just on, you're just up on stage. It's like 9.30 at night. You've been, you just, you just ranted about Laura Ingram. Uh, the audience is with you. And then all of a sudden, Rain Wilson just comes on stage. Uh, <laughs> Dwight from The Office. He's next. Uh, and Dwight from The Office is like, you guys and your politics, it is just, just the whole pol- political enterprise is untoward. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, we should be spiritual and whatever. And he was just like, critis- and I, so I lost my mind a second time, but this time it was on Dwight from The Office and it was like. At him? On stage? It was, it was like in the general direction of the people I was on stage with. Yeah, it was about the idea that like, the idea that politics is inherently like evil and dirty, like 
is wrong. Okay, and first of all, politics is like the civic thing that we do together to decide how we are going to be governed. Like he told, he came up afterwards after the program and he gave me a big hug. It was very nice. He gave me a big hug, but then proceeded to tell me that the way that we should elect our leaders is that we should have everybody in America write down on like a piece of paper uh, who they think should be president. He was like, who do you think would win then? And I was like, I don't know, Oprah. And he was like, well, then wouldn't she make a better president than Joe Biden or Donald Trump? I was like, she's not running for president. You can't conscript people into service. Also, what you just described is a secret ballot. And like, then what people would do who are on the secret ballot is like they'd raise some money, you know, and then like pretty soon they'd form a coalition and pretty soon you'd have political parties spending a lot of money. Like I just, I just wanted to scream Congratulations, at Congratulations, you invented thing. American just, democracy, you Rain. Are, you are the best of us, Sarah, and I'm happy that you hugged Rain Wilson and that you had, a, had this moment of zen with him. But I and I do not want to insult whoever invited Laura Ingram to to this weird event that you are at. But I got I got to fucking say, like these people should be banished from society. Laura Ingram, Laura Ingram, I I, I hate this idea that we need a range of views and that Laura, we need a responsible crowd of Laura Ingram and that Rain Wilson could come on stage after hearing from Laura Ingram and then you and do an epox on both their houses speech. Fuck you, Dwight, okay? <laughs> Fuck you, Dwight. I was always on the side of John Krasinski in that show in the first place. <laughs> and like, pull it together, okay? Sarah was clearly in the right and we can acknowledge right and wrong. And you know, this whole, don't be like, don't be just trying to be like, oh, there's Laura Ingram over here being like, oh, we should deport Mexicans and the news should just be pretend anger to rile people up. And then, oh, on the other side, we've got the person that's like, the news should be serious and educate and Screw both of you. We should all instead hold hands and do yoga. Screw that, Dwight. Come to on. To be fair, he was he was very lovely man. I'm He's sure. A very lovely man. I'm I sure. Just, I'm lovely and misguided. I just it was lovely, just but like, like this idea of like like I'm your job is politics and your job is stupid. I'm like I'm not telling you how to write your you know next comedy show. Like that's not my. I don't Maybe know anything about that. But like I'm not sure. That you've got politics like on the lock. Like, I'm not sure you've grokked like what's happening here and how this thing's going. But but he was super nice and super lovely. Laura Ingram was awful and like was like smug and smarmy and uh well, I'm sure. I... look like Skeletor in person. Does she look like a a skeleton human no, hybrid? No, no, she she looks lovely. She's very tiny, you know, small. Um, but but uh, Did you ask her about her, her love affair with Dinesh? No, there D'Souza? was no there was no interaction. Like I didn't get to do. I was just like next. Like I with like she she was off and then I was on on with like a like a panel. But the here's what I here's what makes me happy. I I just I felt very if I had not said something, I would have spent all night laying awake in bed. I actually did this anyway. I laid awake in bed and thought of other things I wish I had said. Mm -hmm. But at least I said something. The jerk store called. They're all out of you. Sarah, (laughs) I'm proud of you that you said something. You should feel good about that. I just, I want to say to you and to listeners and everyone out there, if you do have an opportunity to see Laura Ingram in the future, 
I think maybe a good entry to that conversation would be, how did it feel to be rejected by Dinesh D'Souza and then to show up at his wedding like a spurned wife? Because that seems like a pretty strange thing and a pretty sad and pathetic thing. And it's interesting that you still have him on your show, even though he's hideous and a liar and he used to have his you-know-what in you. So that might be something oh, to mention to Laura. I think Ingram. we're going to have to cut that. Okay. I don't like well, that. that might just, that, I'm just suggesting that. That, that goes, might be a potential goes, alternate way to deal with Laura. Don't the care show. for it. That goes on the show. Guys, good show. Long we'll show. see you on the Sunday show. If you haven't, hit subscribe, hit the thumbs up, give us five stars, do all that stuff. Bye. Bye.